Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today we'll have um, the death of a young Saharan man. I'll be speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association, a GM-free meeting in Germany, and I'll be speaking with Jessica Harrison. Independent and Peaceful Australia Network and Talisman Saver is happening next week. Shirley Winton will be talking about that. And Prospects for Peace with Professor Emeritus James Petrus from New York. But before we do that, just while we're getting Mr Kevin Healy for the program, we'll have a little bit of a song and then we'll be right back with Mr Kevin Healy. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And cops were getting worse The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. The crown tried to divide them giving preference to some. The diggers wouldn't have it. They said it's all of us or none. They built a stockade while the redcoats massed nearby and they heard the miners shouting, we're ready now to die. The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store. And on one December morning in 1854, the redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall. Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun Things go their way But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day The crown conceded everything All of their demands They'd want an end to license fees The right to vote and land So here's to Joe and Charlie A week, Jane, listener week Congratulations to... Oh, oh, well, hang on, we're going to have to come back to that. We've got breaking news. The, the government has withdrawn true blue Aussie citizenship from the entire ABC staff and rendered them stateless. It's the least they deserve. <laughs> 
and the least we could do to protect the security of True Blue Aussies, to protect True Blue Aussie people from the death cult, to protect True Blue Aussie people from the death cult. Big Supremo, tidy a bit more for the bosses, spoke for all lovers of liberty. As we speak, the staff are being rounded up and transported to Darwin, where they will be provided with a boat and two cans of fuel before being dispatched to their new permanent home on the high seas. Permanent, <laughs> Tiny laughed, but also hopefully temporary. <laughs> His colleague and sometime rival Malcolm Tun of Bull, the Minister for Communicating Free Speech, just pissed himself at Tiny's wit. That is not to say, they said, that we see any humour in this anti-True Blue Aussie attack on our freedoms. Uh, so allowing those who disagree with us to express that disagreement to debate these issues is a crime, is anti-democratic. Uh, but isn't the ABC independent? Certainly, and we will respect, well, would have and will when we appoint the new Team True Blue Aussie ABC staff, will respect that independence as long as they respect that independence by submitting all programs, including news and current affairs, to the government for approval, independent approval. Uh, Malcolm, this is the second time in a few weeks the SBS journalist you had sacked for expressing a view about the failed invasion which forged our true blue Aussie values, and now this. You, you've often expressed a belief in freedom of speech. I am the strongest believer in freedom of speech. I love free speech. I never stop using free speech, but free speech implies, obviously, there is the opposite. There is not free speech, and that's where the ABC in this instance and the SBS sports journalist in his private capacity in that instance abused free speech. They exploited our belief in free speech by using not free speech. Over and above my and our unyielding belief in free speech in allowing all points of view lies an overriding responsibility to protect True Blue Aussies from terrorists like that journalist and the ABC. From the death cult, Malcolm, from the death cult. Uh, so until you appoint new staff, what will happen? In the interim, and possibly temporarily, we have handed the ABC to that great True Blue Aussie, well, great True Blue Aussie values-loving US of the UN of the US of the world citizen, Lord Rupert of Wapping, who has taken such a responsible stand on this latest abuse of free speech. Like us, he is a great supporter of free speech when that free speech is expressed responsibly. Speaking of giving people smugglers and no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people a can of petrol and a wave goodbye, the Socialist Party... Well, before we go there, back where we started, congratulations to the Socialist Party for stepping in after the long-haired commie Greens had agreed to increase the petrol excise in return for the government increasing its spending on public transport to a touch more than the current zero. After opposing the measure for more than a year, the Socialists overnight supported it to ensure public transport spending remained at zero and all the money went to more roads. We just wanted to prove Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Short and Ambition explained that it's most definitely not easy being green. Yeah, Little Billy, let's not let reason or the environment get in the way of hate politics and numbers games.
But the socialists do display decency when decency is required. As we were saying, speaking of giving people smugglers and no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people, a can of petrol and a wave goodbye, the Socialist Party is being urged by sensible, responsible socialists like Joel Fitzgabble and Shadow Minister Richard Moore's refugees to agree with the government that we should hand them a can of petrol and a wave. But Joel and Richard and the majority who support them point out there is a major difference between the government and the socialists. We wave them goodbye with compassion. Joel and Richard were all humanity. In a lengthy interview I heard with Richard, the small fact that there are real human beings on these boats didn't rate a mention, but they were, didn't rate ignored compassionately. We know illegality rests solely with evil unions, yet sometimes innocent, good, caring employers can be caught up in the law. Inadvertently. The fair work truly was he no longer worked choices just looks like an ombudsman, who is a woman, found 456 hospitality caring employers shortchanged 2,752 workers by more than a mere $1.2 million. The restaurant and catering Troubler Wazzy profit spokesperson John Allhart apologised, I hear you say. Well, no, no, he attacked the ombudsman for releasing the report. Deliberately timed, he said, to undermine caring employers trying to get rid of crippling penalty rates, which prompted ACTU Supremo Jed Carney to comment that they want them abolished but don't pay them anyway. See, the offences, John said, occurred when caring employers were a bit confused about changes to the award. Inadvertent underpaying as usual. It's always inadvertent. One worker underpaid by a mere $40,000 inadvertent. So, John, how many workers were inadvertently overpaid in this confusion? Uh, let's see, uh, none, none, none. Looks like none, but, but that's easily explained. That would be really inadvertent. Thank goodness we know that only unions are evil, which the government knows. Due to our concern that union-run super funds were outperforming, to use the industry jargon, outperforming bank and other caring employer-run funds, we have long predicted, and the government has long predicted, that the government has to step in to get evil unions out of looking after their members' money and hand it over to the being-outperformed independent experts. And thus the government is moving to get evil unions out of looking after their members' interests. So, Joel, we asked the Minister for Stopping Evil Union Roach, jo Josh Fry, them burn, burn unions, if the union-run funds are outperforming the banks and big investment funds, uh, what's the problem? This is a typical evil union example of class war where there is no class war. They are going out of their way trying to expose capitalism as incompetent. This is no more than a socialist plot. Dear me, I didn't know it was that serious. Thank goodness there's no such thing as a capitalist plot. You want independent directors on these boards. Oh, yes, yes, independent. Right, right, and, and in the chair of these boards. So I, I imagine a union person not involved with a particular fund or industry could be an independent director and chairperson. Josh. 
Josh, are you OK? Sit down, sit, sit down, you've got ashen. I'll be OK, thank you. No, no, just what you said upset me. No, no, obviously any evil union person cannot be independent. No, the independent directors and chairpeople must come from the truly independent investment community, uh, the ones being outperformed. I told you, it's a socialist commie plot. But thanks for the question. Even if it did cause a bit of a heart flutter there, I'll, I'll tighten up the legislation to make sure evil unions can't unfall through the cracks. Just finally, Josh, will these independent big, big investment fund appointments you put in to manage workers' money demand huge fees for their services? They will demand a fee appropriate to their abilities and experience. So they'll do it for free. Don't be silly. On observing the law, our cherished true Aussie icon BHP for bloody huge profits defended itself against criticism that its tax practices were not transparent. Our tax avoidance is most transparent, it argued. <laughs> no, no, only joking. The big true Aussie wouldn't dream of tax avoidance, of tax dodging. Thanks to the tax laws, we don't have to. <laughs> they laughed on the way to the bank. A globally competitive tax system, and presumably we are not globally competitive, which is why they have to divert their profits to Singapore and places beyond, is necessary for bloody huge profits to help sustain true blue Aussie living standards, which seems to be its prime concern. We are quite capable of caring about sustaining true blue Aussie living standards without making any contribution toward them, it explained. Finally, in the home of democracy, Greek voters are about to learn what happens when you abuse democracy and don't vote for the sensible centre, which we talked about last week. As the International Monetary Profits Fund's Christine Lagarde, the wealthy, repeated also from last week, you can't have meaningful dialogue with people who don't do what you order them to do. Let's hope they get democracy right this week and vote to be crushed. It's for their own good and ours. The selfish anti-democrats have caused a plunge on world markets. Can we think of anything worse? Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And we'll be hearing more about prospects for peace and prospects for Greece also on the program later with Professor Emeritus James Petrus, who will be speaking from New York. And with a name like Petrus, there is a Greek connection there. A young man dies, a mother mourns and demands to know why did he die? How did he die? Where is his body? The mother is Talaba Hadidi, who is a Western Saharan, and the son, Mohammed Lamur Hadada. And his mother will not rest until she has answers. I'm speaking now with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Kate, can you tell the story, please? Yes, well, this concerns a young man called Mohammed Lamin Haidala. He's 21 years old and he was going to the rescue of a neighbour who was fearing that she was going to be raped by a group of Moroccan settlers in El Ayoun, the capital of Western Sahara, where a lot of Moroccans have come to live. Instead, they turned their attentions to him, they attacked him, and he received several stab wounds from a pair of scissors. Goodness knows why they were carrying scissors, but that was 
the weapon, and one of them was quite serious on his neck. He was taken to hospital. They denied giving him anesthesia or any painkillers, and he was given some kind of treatment, but they didn't spend very long on it because then they arrested him and took him to a police station where he had to sleep on the floor without any bedding of any kind and he was released the next day but his health deteriorated and the family wanted to take him back to hospital but he was turned away from the first hospital and the second hospital and several hospitals so in the end he was driven by ambulance to Agadir, which is 600 kilometers away, up in uh, Morocco itself, north from El Ayun. There again, he was sent from one hospital to another because the medical staff were denying him treatment. This uh, then made his condition more severe, as you might expect, and he ended up dying in a hospital waiting room just over a week after the initial attack. The authorities immediately confiscated his body. They uh, won't say where it is. They refused to conduct an autopsy and give any explanation as to the reason for his death. Uh, then um, his mother is called Takba, and she wanted to know what had happened. She got no answers, so this went on for some time. And then in May, she started a hunger strike. And this ran for 36 days outside the Moroccan consulate in Las Palmas to Gran Canaria. That's the bit of Spain that's closest to this part of the world, to Western Sahara. And, and she was supported by a lot of other people, including some members of parliament who held a press conference with her to explain the whole thing and to make her appeal for the truth over her son's death and she wanted justice for those who had contributed to his death. Eventually she was vomiting blood and they decided to take her to hospital and where she's being looked after but all the other supporters then started what they called a hunger chain where they would each do 24-hour hunger strike. They kept that going uh, in front of the consulate just to keep the pressure on Morocco. But to my knowledge, nothing has transpired. They, they are sticking firm and they won't give the answers that are required. There's a group of Algerian journalists who've started a petition in several languages, in Arabic, Spanish, French and English, and also the Australian Western Sahara Association will sign that petition, making the same appeal for truth about the death of this young man and also condemning the general conditions under which the Sahrawis have to live in occupied Western Sahara. The European Parliament is becoming involved? Well, yes, some of the MPs have been involved, but they, the, the petition will be presented to the United Nations and the European Union, the African Union, the Arab League of Organization, the organization, <coughs> excuse me, of uh, Latin American states. 
So they're trying to make this very much a worldwide campaign. And how is his mother now? Oh, I'm sorry, I haven't got the latest information. It's quite hard to follow because there's not very much being given in English. It's mostly in Spanish. I should have looked at the uh, at, at the websites where there might be some information about her. But I assume she's basically all right, or you know, if anything worse had happened to her, I think we would have been told. Has something like this happened before, where people have publicly demonstrated their anger, their frustration, their their sadness? at a death of a, a loved one? I think it happens quite frequently. Several cases where Saharawis have died at Moroccan hands and they refused to make proper inquiry. There's the young man, Demba, the Demba family, who have been notoriously calling for an or, uh, autopsy of their son. They refused to allow a proper burial until... There's an inquiry. There have been other cases, but I, this one has, I suppose, gained a little bit more amplification because she took her protest to Las Palmas in Spain rather than just protesting inside occupied Western Sahara. And the young man was 21 years old? Yes, yes, he was quite, quite young. But uh, the thing, one thing I find rather shocking is the way in which the medical profession is collaborating with the oppressive Moroccan regime. This has been known before in a more limited way, that, and it happens in many regimes where torture is routine, for example, that doctors are called in to be able to certify that the person won't die, that they, they, they sort of let them get tortured until a certain point and then they tell them to stop and it's happened when there's been hunger strikers who have passed out and who get, get taken to hospital and they get revived, you know, just enough so that they won't die. The medical people, uh, you know, don't give them the full treatment that they would be giving. It was a circumstances were politically different but this time to just actually tur- to not even pretend to be giving any kind of care to actually turn them away from hospital that seems to me to be a very serious turn of events and not just one hospital oh lots of them yes exactly there's a whole collaboration of the entire profession by this by the look of it with this case it's not just one or two doctors in you know, a particular military hospital or anything like that. Meanwhile, the struggle goes on. It does, it does, and uh, we have to just persist and and, uh, and call out these things. I mean, the, there has been a, an appeal for many years that the United Nations mission in Western Sahara that's supposed to be monitoring the ceasefire while it prepares for a referendum, uh, that it should have human rights reporting responsibilities. But routinely this gets rejected in the Security Council because Morocco's big 
ally France refuses this and they want to avoid a veto because it, it can have the power of veto so it doesn't get through and uh, cases like this show very clearly why it would be important for an independent international agency to be monitoring the human rights situation in Western Sahara. Is that normal that there is a human rights component to UN missions? Normally, yes. It's, it, it, it is normal that it would be part of the mission and they must have had their eyes on this from the very start because it's one of the very few missions that have ever been set up that don't have this capacity. Recent, I mean, it's not exactly recent now. It was set up in uh, 1991 and it's a rather a long time that they have been getting themselves into this impasse where they don't seem to be able to organise the referendum. I was speaking there with Kate Lewis, who's from the Australia Western Sahara Association, and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time right now is 4.24. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing, and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. Last year, the inaugural conference of the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network was held in Canberra. This year, the venue is Brisbane and coincides with the Talisman Saver Military War Games, which will be fought over six locations in northern and central Australia. Shirley Winton from Melbourne was one of the participants last year and will be heading for Brisbane in a couple of days. First, Shirley, go back a year or two. The background, the work, the commitment to establish the national network. Thanks, Jan. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network was established in early 2012. I think it was February 2012. It was established in response to Obama's visit the previous year in 2011, November 2011, to Australia when he graced the shores of Australia to announce America's military pivot into Asia-Pacific and his announcement described the increased presence of America's uh, military in Australia, including troops, permanent basing of troops, the increase or the building of new US bases in Australia and expansion of the existing US bases in Australia. Oh, this is the Australian Defence Force infrastructure. We were greatly concerned about the implications of this pivot and the integration of Australia more deeply into the US war machine, the imperialist war machine. So Obama's visit was at the end of 2011. The Independent Peaceful Australia Network was formed in early 2012 in February and it brought together peace, anti-war community groups, faith organisations and unions who all concerned with this rapidly increasing US presence in Australia but also in the Asia-Pacific. We were also quite concerned at the two major parliamentary parties' subservience 
to U.S. foreign policies and our support for the U.S. military adventures in Iraq um, and in Afghanistan at that time. And the growing threat that the U.S.-Australia alliance was actually posing to Australia. We were concerned that Australia would be dragged into another U.S., into another major U.S. war, but this time we'll be on our doorstep in Asia-Pacific with countries in our region. So that was the origins of, of IPAN, and then that same year in 20, November 2012, Australian shores were graced again by the former Secretary, U.S. Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, who confirmed and commended the Australian government and the opposition, the main parliamentary parties, for embracing the pivot, for welcoming the U.S. US troops. Since that time, there's about 100 organisations, uh, peace community organisations, unions that have affiliated with IPAN. In Easter last year, we held the first national conference of IPAN in Canberra. Following that, for the last 12 months, we've been um, collecting more data. We've had several petitions and initiated and participated with other groups in peace activities around Australia. What's been the development with the US in the Northern Territory over the last year? Over the last year, we've seen now the announcement three years ago of stationing of 2,500 troops. Now there are, I think there's 1,500 troops. By 2020, it is claimed that there will be 2,500 troops. We believe that that's actually, you know, this is the public figure that uh, the intentions are to substantially increase the the troops in Darwin. There is a a huge movement in Okinawa, as I think people know, a people's movement to remove um, the U.S. bases and U.S. troops. It has um, created some social political problems in Okinawa and we believe that America is looking at uh, shifting some of their troops out of Okinawa. There's no more room in Guam because it's totally covered with uh, U.S. troops and bases. And I think that maybe if I could quote... The most recent, uh, there's a couple of quotes from American General. In April 2015, U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Doherty, on landing in Darwin, excitedly proclaimed that Australia is an empty place. And this is his quote. You guys have opened up your homes to us. We're living in your guest house. The outback truly is outback with vast, wide, open spaces. There's things we can do here we cannot do back in the United States. It's very restricted in the United States. You have to worry about safety considerations like not shooting other units as you train. However, here you don't have these issues. It's a blank state. This is a very, very loaded statement indicating the US attitude to Australia. There's no recognition of local Aboriginal communities around Darwin and around the Bradshaw military military base. There's no recognition of other local communities and obviously Australia's environment. And it is, uh, when you think about it, it is continuation of the British terra nullius that started in the late 18th century. That's one insight into the plans that America has for Northern Territory and for Australia generally. And in May this year, during the testimony before the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee, U.S. Defense Department Assistant Secretary for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs, David Shear, now he's no sort of low-level 
general in the army or military man, announced that in addition to the movement of U.S. Marines and army units around the Western Pacific region, quote, we will be placing additional Air Force assets in Australia as well, including the B-51 bombers and surveillance aircraft. Um, now, we know that the B-1 bombers are the biggest American warplanes that carry nuclear weapons as well. Now, the comment even came as a surprise to, to the Abbott government, the servile Abbott government, who said they knew nothing. Well, at first they said they knew nothing about it. And obviously the United States didn't even bother to notify the Australian government of its intention. And as it's been pointed out, the US treats Australia as, as its 52nd state and doesn't expect any opposition from the subservient government. It was later claimed that Mr Scheer, this is the uh, Defence Department Assistant Secretary, had misspoke, whatever that means. But it's more likely that he let the cat out of the bag and in inadvertently revealed U.S. real intentions uh, for Australia and in Asia Pacific. There is so there is a an increased presence of U.S. warplanes in around Darwin, around Bradshaw military base. There's more U.S. troops there now. By 2020, that will be increased, as I've said earlier, to 2,500, but we believe there'll be much more than that. The local media is constantly running the line of how beneficial it is going to be to the economy of Darwin, and that's the usual you know, line that mainstream me media and um, the powers behind the government's policies are constantly promoting to quell any kind of opposition or concerns by the local community. But I should also mention that the central northern, northeast coastal Queensland in Rockhampton, there are the, the beginnings of the biannual, that's exercises, military exercises called talisman saver exercises that are being held between the 4th of July and the 12th of July. And they're being held at Shoal, as in Shoalwater Bay. There'll be 34,000, this is the official figures again, again or the public figures, 34,000 armed soldiers. There'll be more than 20,000 US Marines, 10,000 Australian soldiers. There'll be 500 New Zealand soldiers and 40 so-called personnel, military personnel. Now, Japan at the moment has a has a constitution does not allow it to send its troops, its military engagement. So the 40 personnel, military personnel, would be probably fairly high-ranking personnel in Japan. All these exercises is part of the US pivot and integrating Australia's, Japanese, New Zealand military into the US war machine and also interoperability into the U.S. war machine. They like to use the word interoperability, meaning that, that the U.S. is in command and all, all the military and defence forces of all of Japan, of Australia, of New Zealand are totally integrated into the U.S. military, but also its uh, plans. Now, there's a, quite a few things to unpack here. As a result of these uh, 20,000, more than 20,000, U.S. troops in Rockhampton. Brisbane has been flooded with um, U.S. soldiers at the moment. There's a lot of concern about it. Some of the local tourist, I suppose, tourist enterprises, including some of the managers or owners of brothels, have been quoted as saying what a great business this is going to be for the people of Brisbane. 
to coincide with the Talisman Sabre exercises in Queensland. There are several peace activities that are being take, that are taking place. The Independent Peaceful Australia Network. We organise. We have organised a national public forum and conference in Brisbane, and also there is a peace convergence in Rockhampton, which will be attended by, we hope, several hundred people. And some of these young people who are part of the peace group, um, calling the the hundred peace, will actually are hoping to get onto the um, onto the the exercise area, the mil- the joint military exercise areas, or what they're really called is preparations for war, but also rehearsals for major wars in the region. Now, the IPEN conference on the eighth of um, of July in uh, State Library, uh, in Brisbane State Library, IPEN is holding a public forum called the Dangerous Allies, which is um, in reference to the late Malcolm Fraser's book, also called Dangerous Allies, which poses, well, it's not a question, it poses the position that the US-Australia alliance, the US bases and the US troops in Australia are a danger, a real danger to Australia's security. The forum, the public forum, the main speakers, the three main speakers on Wednesday night's main forum will be Professor Cosway Akibayashi, who's from Okinawa, Japan, and uh, she's the recently elected international president of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and has been for many years an activist in the Okinawa movement against the U.S. military bases and is a member of the campaign against U.S. bases in Okinawa. She will speak on the movement, the peace movement in Okinawa to get rid of the U.S. bases. She will also talk about the U.S. pivot and the implications in the region. Professor Richard Tanter, as people are familiar with, from the Melbourne University Nautilus Institute, who's done an enormous amount of research and produced a lot of papers and information on the US military bases and intelligence facilities in Australia. And the third speaker will be Senator Scott Ludlam, who's the co-deputy leader of the Australian Greens. He's going to talk about Australia's foreign policies. So that's going to be on Wednesday 8th, a public forum. And then July the 9th, the following day, will be the IPED National Conference where all the three speakers from the night before from the public forum will be attending and the workshops will include the US military installation in Australia, the TPP and the economic side of the military pivot and how they are connected, building movement for peace and independence, women and peace and wars and the environment. So they're going to be the the main themes around which the National Conference is organising itself. Can you expand on the TPP? Yeah, okay. The TPP, yes, one of the things that we've been, IPEN has been stating for some time is that the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement is the other side of the U.S. pivot into Asia-Pacific. What I, I should quote, I've got a quote here from Thomas Friedman is the famous U.S. economist and New York Times columnist, and he wrote in 1999, quote, the hidden hand of the market will never work without the hidden fist of the military. McDonald's, I mean the chicken McDonald's, cannot flourish without McDonnell Douglas, the designer of the F-15 warplanes. 
and the hidden fist that keeps the world safe for Silicon Valley's technologies is called the United States Army, Air Force, Navy and Marine Corps. That pretty clearly states we can't view the Asia-Pacific military pivot without seeing the hand behind it, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Both have more or less have emerged simultaneously and that we now, we, everyone now agreed that the objective of the Trans-Pacific Partnership is to enhance, protect and expand the US economic dominance in the Asia-Pacific. China's rising economy is posing a threat to the American hegemony, economic hegemony around the world, but especially in the Asia-Pacific, but also in Australia. Trans-Pacific Partnership is a means of consolidating and expanding that US dominance. And it does mean uh, capturing new markets or capturing resources, the new markets and areas of uh, political and economic influence. So with the TPP, for instance, the ISDS clause, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Clause, which gives uh, corporations the power to sue governments where the corporations feel their their profits are going to be undermined or they're not going to benefit in in maximising the profits. The TPP at the moment excludes China as well. So it's... um, Obviously, the Friedman's quote, I think, is like out of the horse's mouth. The two are pretty much connected. And whenever you, wherever you see the U.S. economic interests either being extended or protected, it's always in conjunction with the military, with the U.S. military. And we've seen that happening in the Middle East, the capture of the natural resources there, the oil. Um, there's the economic ambitions or strivings by the U.S. that are, protect that are usually followed by the US US military in enforcing and installing its own dominance and control of natural resources. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership is very much linked to the US pivot, whereas the US pivot is being put across as purely military. We probably should call it, call it a US military and economic pivot in Asia-Pacific. The trouble is, surely, though, that a lot of these negotiations are happening behind closed doors, how difficult is it for you even to get the information that you've got? Yeah. WikiLeaks and Snowden have done enormous service to the ordinary people around the world. The release or the leak of particularly the ISDS and various other clauses have really given that greater strength, the empowerment for the people all around the world, in America, in Europe and the growing movement in Australia now to resist the government signing the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There is a a movement, a very strong movement um, now developing in Australia against the TPP and interestingly the people involved in opposing the TPP are also quite deeply involved in the the, the US pivot into Asia-Pacific and the increased integration of Australia into US war machine. Is there also concern that it's a bit late to be protesting, that they've already got this sewn up? No, 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 it's not late. There was um, the movement in America, the people's movement in America, is really quite enormous. The unions are playing, you know, at the moment they're playing a really 
positive role in holding back the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the fast-tracking, Obama's fast-tracking of the TPP. They've managed to delay it. It has passed, but there's various other hurdles that it has that they have to jump over, including that it's getting closer to the presidential elections. Now, because it's such a controversial topic in in, a, in America, the TPP, that there is a possibility that it will be further delayed till after the presidential elections, which is which is obviously our, our hope. In Australia, even if the Australian government signs the TPP, it still has to go. There's a, some steps that have to be taken where it has to go through through Parliament. That gives us an opportunity to mount a really major uh, mass campaign, particularly as, as the consequences of the TPP are more exposed and known, known by people. And in fact, there's been formed... Um, we're diverging here. In Victoria, there's a, uh, a TPP roundtable co- coalition that's recently been formed and it has come out of the ACTU fringe event on the TPP that was held at the end of May and initiated by community groups and a couple of unions like the MUA and the AMWU, a motion calling on the government to, to release the text and not to support the ISDS. That went to the full plenary session of the ACTU conference where 1,000 delegates, um, union delegates from around Australia, unanimously supported and passed it. The next step in the TPP is um, there is a Labor um, National Labor Conference at the end of July and plans are being made to hold activities outside the, the conference urging the, the Labor Party not to support the TPP. There's much more movement, uh, there's much more grassroots activity in part of the TPP Roundtable Coalition. Other community groups involved, apart from several unions, are GetUp and also The Choice magazine. So they're very keen to be part of that broad movement. There's several grassroots community groups as well. So the TPP is very much linked to the US military pivot to Asia-Pacific. And it really is all tied that both are being driven by the major US corporations and major banks. And it is all designed to to secure America's economic hegemony in the area. We can't talk about the US war machine without talking about the worldwide number of refugees. When you think of the wars that America is involved in and pushing others into, and we've got the most refugees since World War Two, yeah. How are you focusing on that? The way that we're focusing in in IPAN is that we're saying that the reason for such a, as you've said, the huge flood of refugees, is wars cause refugees. I mean, the Second World we're saying about after the Second World War that we had a huge flood of refugees. The consequence of every war, apart from their massacre, devastation of countries is the displacement of people. And we see that now. We see that that was happening in um, Sri Lanka. It's happening in Syria. It's happening in Libya. It's happening in the me- right across the Middle East. So wars and refugees are inseparable. If 
the Australian government or the both major parliamentary parties are really fed income about stopping the refugees coming to Australia. We know that they're not really concerned about the welfare of the refugees. Rather than um, stopping the refugees from um, entering Australia and accommodating them in Australia, which um, they're quite capable of doing and have the resources to do it, they would be actually working to stop wars around the world. And the first thing that that could do is disengage Australia from America's wars. It could advocate an independent foreign policy, an independent foreign policy that actually promotes peace around the world. So we're linking the two issues very closely together. Just focus before you go, Shirley, on the talisman sabre and the destruction it must cause when you've got a... It's virtually a mini-war, isn't it? The number of men, or do you say there's women involved as well, on both the, the land and the sea environment. The exercises include, and that was the, the exercise two years ago, included the actual bombing part of the coast. We all know that in northern Queensland or right across Queensland, it's very sensitive very environmentally sensitive areas and they're very pristine and they're very precious and they're part of the part of our sovereignty, part of Australia's sovereignty there. That love for the environment that Australian people have is part of our is part of our makeup virtually. And the assault that's military assaults by these exercises and all the war practices is an assault on Australian people and our sovereignty. The bombing ranges inc- include large sections of the coast, of North Queensland coast, north of Rockhampton. They also include inland. There's large areas which have been designated for bombing practices and similarly in Northern Territory. In Northern Territory, there'll be bombing targets they're preparing for wars, and wars devastate the environment, kill, assassinate people. They're all interconnected. Just to digress a little bit, I, I was in the Philippines over Christmas, and, and there's an area there which has an underground river. That area, at the moment, it's been, it's been controlled by the local indigenous communities have managed to take control of the area, the pristine environment area. And we met some of the elders who run the tours of this river, And they were telling us about several years ago, there was an American warship just off the coast. It started leaking oil, sunk and created enormous damage to their reef. And it was right over the reef. And rather than properly cleaning up, the Americans just broke up the boat and just left it lying on the reef, leaking more oil and probably some nuclear stuff as well. There's no consideration for the environment. So you're off to... Brisbane. We're going to Brisbane for the uh, forum and the conference and also the talisman sabre activities. There's a lot of work that the people in Brisbane have put into organising and it is growing. I think that when you look at two years ago when the last military exercises, talisman sabre exercises were held just in the two years that the understanding and knowledge about the consequences of those exercises and also the dangers that uh, Australia-US alliance is posing to Australian people, our environment, our sovereignty. As part of the US pivot, America's own documents state that they expect the cost of building new bases in Australia, of expanding the existing military facilities, of hosting the American troops here to be paid by the Australian 
people through the, through Texas. And that's in one of the papers that I found. It's called the Foreign Policy Military Site. So it's like the people in Okinawa who for the last 60 years have been paying for the US bases. This is now being expanded to include Australia and probably the Philippines and and right across across the region. So we've got a big fight on our hands. We must not be overwhelmed by the US military machine and its tentacles around the world because people are fighting back and have fought back. People have succeeded. I think that when you look at, for instance, Latin America, people in Latin America have been subjected to an all-rounded assault at all levels. And yet they've been able to resist it. Cuba has been able to resist that onslaught. And so has Venezuela, similarly with uh, Bolivia. And it was because of those movement on the ground that those countries were able to mobilise to inform the ordinary people about the consequences of giving up the sovereignty and submitting to the US machine. Similarly in Okinawa, where... It's been a long fight for the people of Okinawa for more than for 60 years. And the fact that the U.S. is now considering moving some of the troops out of Okinawa, finding new bases, because right across, it's not just in Okinawa, but right across Japan, that opposition to U.S. bases in Japan and dragging Japan into another war is growing and it's strong. And America is more than ever exposed as a mongrel, basically, around the world. And that is a success. I mean, if we look back 20 years ago, America was still seen as a kind of saviour of uh, human rights and democratic rights and things. Now they're totally exposed because their activities are now being resisted by their people. People in New Zealand um, stop nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed ships entering their waters. In America... In the with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the fact that uh, government there and the Republicans and Democrats were forced to delay the fast-tracking, that was the, the grassroots public movement. A transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership in European Union, which is also enormous, enormous movement, has built up there. The ISDS is so unpopular that they've actually now put the ISDS, the governments in in Europe have told America, they want the ISDS to be put on the back burner. It's a step-by-step thing, but they were successes as a result by those mass movements. It's the battle between the 1% and the 99%, and that's what the US military and the US pivot in the Asia-Pacific and the TPP and the TTIP and the TISA, that's what they're all about. And there's more of us than them. Absolutely. And that's Shirley Winton from Independent Peaceful Australia Network. Off to Brisbane in a couple of days. I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. I don't think I could handle it. I would probably go mad. Do you know what I mean? I would go mad. 3CR and Music Matters Radiothon Film Fundraiser is the new documentary study of the great British soul queen, Amy Winehouse. Bring your friends along to the Kino Cinema at 45 Collins Street in the city on Thursday the 2nd of July at 6.30pm. Tickets are $20 concession and $25 wage. Buy your tickets online at 3cr.org.au or at the station, 21 Smith Street Fitzroy or phone Loretta during business hours on 9 Anti-GM and anti-coal-sane gas activist Jessica Harrison has returned from four weeks in Europe, one in Germany and three in England. 
starting, Jessica, with the main focus for the visit to Germany, a GE free conference in Berlin, I believe. Yes, that's right. It was the GMO Free Regions Conference. So the first time they'd held the conference for 10 years. Quite inspiring for them to see the growth of the GM Free movement, really. But it was co-hosted by Danube Sawyer, which is a business which is set up to grow non-GM soy in Europe to basically, rather than import GM from places like South America and Canada and the US, they decided to grow it in their region. A positive thing. Danube Soya, they're called. So they're growing non-GM soy in Germany. So they were the co-hosts of the conference. So there were three hosts, actually. One was the European NGOs and scientists, and then there was also some of the regional parts of Germany which already had a non-GM policy. So, yeah, it was quite amazing to be hosted by, say, the Austrian embassy, hosted us for one evening. The places that we were meeting in, the whole conference was opened by the the Parliamentary State Secretary of the state of Northern Rhine and Westphalia, so that's just a region of Germany. And then, of course, you get the whole impact of, for example, the old Eastern Bloc. Um, There's been a strong rejection of GM in those areas. We had, for example... There's a ban on GM maize, which is the only GM crop grown in Europe anyway. So it's banned in Poland and, for example, in the Ukraine. They were growing it and it's now been reversed, so no GMs are allowed to be grown. 20,000 hectares of non-GM soy being grown in Romania, same as in Bosnia. So that rejection is happening. Yeah, whole countries are just either turning back or just not going in that direction. So it was nice to come from a country on the other side of the world. Of course, we've got two non-GMO regions in Australia, which is South Australia and Tasmania. So it made me realise how important those areas are to us. I could imagine there's a big push by Monsanto to get in there, though. How are they countering that? Well, in Australia, they do things like the agriculture minister in South Australia actually spoke at a march against Monsanto, so immediately they came back with their PR machine attacking him verbally for having attended it. Tasmania have just had already an experience of GM contamination, which they're still cleaning up from the late 90s. So I think they'd have a lot of trouble convincing Tasmania to grow GM. And who are the people who came? Like, you're from overseas, plenty of local people, but what, who else was there? Okay, so there were 60 countries represented, 400 people. That's huge. And yeah. Japan, a lot of delegates from Africa. Canada, I found that really interesting because they're in a way similar to us, as in the, we share a language, but they're in a worse position because their contamination is rife and it's almost impossible to grow non-GM canola now due to the contamination. The US, there was a very dynamic guy there from the Organic Consumers Association and he told us the story of this one state in the US, Vermont, which has now required GM labelling and how the fact that just one area requiring it is causing the multinationals to have to reformulate because they know that if they actually admitted there was GM in their products, it would be a death knell for that product. He's heard on the grapevine, for example, that Coca-Cola are reformulating and doing this healthy version of Coca-Cola. And, of course, not that we want people to drink Coca-Cola, but it's just interesting 
how disruptive it is for the multinationals that are trying to control our food to have one little area resisting it. And how are they resisting it in Africa? Well, in Africa, there's this very um, strong alliance for food sovereignty in South Africa. Then there are groups spread throughout Africa, um, Nigeria, Uganda, and they're working together strongly. And, of course, um, the Gates Foundation has its eye upon Africa as the new market. Um, Not so much the new market in their case, but the new area where a market can be disguised as philanthropy and, as we know, For example, we have the case of the GM banana, which is being developed in Australia, but they say that it's destined for Uganda where it's going to solve problems of vitamin A deficiency. So Africa is is seen as an area which um, is an expanding market for GM. And, of course, they eat a lot of um, maize in Africa, and we're, we're finding that if they import maize, there is a problem, of course, with GM coming in in that, quite apart from what's actually grown how influences the Gates Foundation worldwide to push for GM? Um, they're pushing it very strongly. And, of course, um, one of the things I say when I'm speaking in public is GM's good for one thing. It's good for if you have a research project and you want funding, you can promise the world. You know, you can promise cures of every known disease. You can promise that it'll grow with no water <laughs> or in highly salty soils and you'll get that funding. And then you don't have to necessarily come out with a result. And so what was a surprise to me is as well as the GMO banana, which is being developed near Innisfail in a project run by Queensland University of Technology, there's also a researcher who researched GMPs here and his um, project collapsed after it was found to cause allergic reactions in mice. He's apparently come back and he's now promoting a GM cowpea in Africa. So it just shows you these GM researchers, they bounce back. And what about South America? Are they pushing there as well? Oh, yeah. Well, Are they you know, in? Yeah, they're in strongly. The people are starting to wake up to the fact that you, you can't have GM without dousing of the area with glyphosate. So the health effects on Argentina, for example, are huge. Whole communities are actually sprayed in Roundup in the process of the soy fields being sprayed. There was a presentation about the horrific birth defects caused by that. And, you know, it's, again, growing concern, governmental concern now, finally. But can they prove that link? Well, it's more a case of that the the number of testimonials now about it have really reached the stage where they can't really deny it now. So it's a case of us working in solidarity with the people in South America to actually make sure that there isn't a market anymore for GM and then that will, I think, have an effect. This conference happened just after the announcement by the World Health Organisation that there's a possible, probable link between Roundup and cancer. Yeah. What impact did that have on the conference? Well, an immediate one in that a dynamic group of people are now offering worldwide tests of our urine and also our drinking water for glyphosate. So they're offering that for just over $100 per test. And so already we've got people who are interested in that in in our region. But I think that people were just amazed to have that vindication in a way because, you know, even in my local area, I'm sort of known as a person who says, don't bring that stuff into the community garden. So it's really, yeah, I'm all over the world. I think people are realising the connection. And if we... 
glyphosate is phased out, you can't have GM crops because the majority, of course, are designed to be doused with Roundup glyphosate. And did countries react to this announcement? Okay, yes. So basically there's a whole lot of things happening, not necessarily governmental. Some of it is just straight out. For example, in Germany, some of the gardening chains, you know, an example of something like Bunnings, they've actually just started removing the glyphosate-based herbicides from their shelves. And then we've also got, of course, governmental announcements such as the one in France where they said that they'll be phasing out any sale of Roundup. So we've got a combination. Sri Lanka, for example, they talked about phasing out the use of Roundup because of health effects on farm workers. Then they got pressure from Monsanto and co. Then they said, we'll be phasing it out. And now they're, they're coming on a lot more strongly. What's been the reaction from Monsanto to this WHO Oh, well, we, we had it in WA last week. They were saying, oh, we've yet to see the documentation for this study. So they're just trying to cast a little bit of doubt around there, just for very similar to the climate deniers, really, just trying to put it out there. I'm just looking at the other countries. Switzerland also have taken a stand against the sale of glyphosate. And, yeah, more is happening all the time. But I think the French statement last week was a very strong one. And, of course, I copied it straight to the Bunnings people who I got straight on to when I first heard about it. And uh, they came back to me with all this garbage about how it was... It was not, a, not as bad as them actually saying it was carcinogenic, saying it was a probable carcinogen, whereas probable carcinogen is one of the strongest definitions that they come out with. So, so I'll be back on to them. See, I was going to say, what does it take to get Bunnings to, to get rid of it? Well, I really don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a, a stirred-up population. I did read that there was someone from New Caledonia there. That's right. So what's happening in the Pacific? um, Oh, it's really interesting what's happening in New Caledonia because they have, in a way, um, because they are an uh, ex-French colony, they've inherited an awareness about GM in food, but they've also been able to restrict the import of GM seeds. So GM seeds can't be imported into New Caledonia, but not content with that, they've started to work in their region to actually raise awareness of that. And when GM papaya is one of their big concerns, they've got it. If you go to their website, they have a petition you can sign because GM papaya could actually turn up in our diets here in the form of dried pawpaw. You see it sometimes in health food shops. And GM papaya started in Hawaii and then contaminated very quickly after that. And what about other parts of the Pacific? Do they talk about coming into there as well or is it yes, just New definitely. Caledonia? They've had some support from the New Caledonian government so they've been able to go to the New Hebrides and other areas. They're a really strong outward looking group. They're non-GM alternatives. It's just that thing of being able to raise the awareness quickly enough so the GM doesn't get in because then it starts to spread of course. All right well the conference went for a weekend what was the end result what's going to be the follow-up? Well I mean I suppose for for me I I had a sort of an awareness now of the importance of the areas as I said that we have in Australia which have resisted GM and which are are our established non-GM regions also the awareness of the um, 
as you, as we've just been saying, of, of glyphosate. And um, I suppose just a, a really strong feeling that we're all working together and that the the economic, you know, the gains of the countries that have managed to ban GM and reverse previous pro-GM policies are gains that we all benefit from. And that's what I said when I gave my presentation, really, that that um, the farmers in Australia who are receiving around $50 per tonne more for their non-GM canola at the moment are benefiting from the fact that there's been a wide-scale rejection of GM food in Europe. So, yeah, we're all in it together. Did you give the example of the farmer in Western Australia? I certainly did, Steve Marsh, yep. Now, he's still in the middle of his appeal and, um, of course, it came out that the GM farmer had been getting some help with his financial, his costs during the case. And that was, you could almost sort of (laughs) hear the Monsanto rep squirming when he was forced to admit that. How long before that case is over? We really don't know. It's fairly unusual, an appeal in that sort of situation. So we don't really have a timeline on that. And it's had a terrible reaction to most of the people involved in that case, hasn't it? Well, yeah, a lot of stress on Steve Marsh and his partner having to then really, um, two, you know, two-thirds of their farm was contaminated, so they had that area that they had to then try and work out, can they make a living out of a third of their farm? But also the battle really is being fought in WA at the moment because Monsanto are trying to expand at the same time as we've got a clear case of how growing GM next to a non-GM farmer has had a major effect on him. And what's happening here in Victoria? Oh, Victoria, it's quite a... um, They're not really... Yeah, spinning their, um, working their PR machine very strongly because from what we can work out, it's only about 5% of the total canola crop. So, of course, that's good from our point of view that we don't have to worry so much about GM contamination, roadside weeds and so on. So I don't have to go out <laughs> searching for and testing roadside weeds, which is good. I think that what's happened is the older farmers who said, let's just wait and see, are really having their caution proven because basically the younger farmers have now really gone back to non-GM, as far as we can tell. And will you be bringing out any of the participants to Australia later? Ah, yes. Well, this is the exciting news we have that Mariam Mayotte, who's the director of the African Food Sovereignty Alliance is planning to come here in August and we'll be having a public meeting when she comes and we haven't got the title of it worked out but it'll be in central Melbourne so if your listeners are interested in finding out more about the effect of GM on on Africa that um, that's the time. You're listening to like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. And before that message, you were listening to Jessica Harrison, anti-GM activist, talking about her visit to Berlin. And next week she'll be talking more about Berlin and also her time in England. 
What will happen to Greece in coming weeks and months is consuming many political commentators and none less than the Greek people, both at home and abroad. Today we hear from Professor Emeritus James Petrus from Bingham University in New York. James, where do you believe the blame lies for the situation today in Greece and the role played by the government since its election in January? We have a very uh, contradictory picture in Greece. We have a, a quite radical electorate that put in power a seemingly very progressive government called Syriza, a defeat of the far right and the uh, former social democratic alliance with the right, and all seemed to open the door to an alternative to the austerity measures imposed by the IMF and the uh, European Bank and the European Commission. However, since the election, Syriza has made a series of compromises with the right, attempting to secure new bailout funds and to refinance their debt and perhaps reduce the debt. Instead, the European Union has demanded further concessions, cuts in pensions, repayment schedules that preclude any uh, economic growth, in other words, condemning Greece to uh, a further immiseration and stagnation, to such a point that Syriza was finally forced to put some closure on it, even as they made new concessions in meeting the, the uh, creditors' demands. This was en- enraging their uh, big constituency among public employees and among pensioners. To such a point that uh, finally they said no more concessions despite their their, uh, weakness up to that point and have now convoked this uh, referendum. The referendum appears to be on the surface a yes and no proposition. That is, no further concessions to the uh, European bankers. However, the yes vote is supported by about a third of the wealthy and affluent Greeks who uh, essentially got all of their ties with the European Union uh, largely uh, connected with the overseas accounts and have no real commitment to uh, Greece's future, especially for uh, its public sector and, uh, and the uh, large number of pensioners. So... The no vote will be a partial victory. Now, in saying that, I want to call your attention to one issue. A no vote is also an endorsement of what Syriza has done up to now, which is essentially concede a whole series of austerity measures. It's a kind of a tricky thing. I think the, the Greek population sees the no as a repudiation of austerity, a repudiation of the EU, and others see it as a uh, negotiating tool by Syriza to secure an agreement. The recent almost hourly impact of Syriza's declaration is a tremendous decline in confidence in the European Union, the Eurozone, the Euro has dropped significantly. The U.S. stock market has dropped over 300 points. The ripple effects of Greece's exit from the European Union 
are going to have enormous repercussions and may call into question the viability of the European Union. This may force the European bankers to think twice about imposing a greater austerity. They've already squeezed Greece to the point where uh, uh, almost 30% of the labor force is out of work. 40% of its enterprises are bankrupt or near bankrupt. The banks are closed. So what is chaotic in Greece is also having a, a contagion effect on uh, all of Europe. This is a, uh, a very uh, dynamic unfolding situation that could precipitate a, a return of the major crisis of just a couple of years ago. Who is responsible for the huge debt and where did the money go to? Well, let's put it in context as to the tango. The Greek governments uh, borrowed heavily. The Greek government of Fasak uh, uh, joined the European Union, joined the Eurozone. They borrowed the money and, and didn't invest it. Many of the loans never entered Greece. They just went to refinance loans that were made at exorbitant interest rates, double and triple the ongoing rates that uh, are borrowing rates in other European countries. A massive amount of money was channeled into useless military expenditures, Olympic expenditures. There was a lot of diversion of funds into overseas accounts so that the uh, European banks were totally irresponsible and greedy and in lending to Greece and should bear the full costs of it. But most of these uh, loans uh, were uh, illegal loans in the sense that they didn't serve the purposes for which they were declared. The European bankers uh, then insisted that the uh, European public agencies, the Eurozone banking institutions, force Greece to recapitalize and socialize the private debt. And that cost Greece tens of billions of dollars because the private banks had engaged in a lot of this illicit behavior and there was no business of Greece recapitalizing these private banks at the expense of the public treasury and the taxpayer and then institute austerity programs because the private banks were refloated on public treasury money. So the, the whole idea of repaying loans, illicit loans, goes contrary to a parliamentary committee that's set up to examine this loan that's been uh, operating in Greece since April. The chairman of the parliament has declared the uh, debt illegal, odious, and that it shouldn't be paid. Uh, this is not the position of the Syriza leadership, Tsipras and Varoufakis, who have uh, continued to pledge to pay the debt in a, a very foolish and, and, and irresponsible way. This debt is never going to be paid. It shouldn't be assumed, and uh, Greece should declare it according to the, uh, their, their own scientific findings and an odious and illegal debt and, and forget about it. Well, how could they repay it anyway? They can't, but they will be paying for decades, and they will be draining the Treasury. They'll never have the kind of uh, income that would allow them to finance a recovery. So 
all in all, Syriza has not taken that into account. Instead, they did everything possible to remain in the European Union to secure new debt financing, which is a vicious and endless circle. So they've gotten to the point that they've emptied the Treasury. They can't go further without alienating uh, the vast majority of their voters and supporters. So they put a stop to it, but it's very late in the game. If they had done this all in January when they were elected, they'd have uh, billions of dollars from which to develop an alternative uh, development strategy, default on the debt, and cut a new path. But uh, as things stand now, it's better late than never. They're calling for this referendum. Hopefully, will give them a mandate to look in a different direction. James, with a, a family name like Petrus, do you have connections to Greece still? Yes, I have been to Greece several times. At one point, I was an advisor to the prime minister between 81 and 84, the first Papandreou government, which promised to socialize the economy, did far less than that. I objected to their going into the European Union, and there was always the short-term outlook of the prime minister that thought huge transfers of money from the EU would lead to Greece's uh, modernization. Instead, he channeled it into a lot of clientelistic projects. And eventually, I resigned from the government in uh, rejecting a lot of the non-productive activities, the emerging kleptocracy clientelism, etc. We did accomplish a great deal in terms of immediate short-term reforms, wage increases, divorce, and uh, new universities, new health plans, etc. But ultimately, the economic foundations of Greece were very shaky, and, and uh, we could see that even early on. But Papandreou was a very authoritarian leader, would subject any uh, critic to expulsion from the party and uh, ended up creating an alliance or in, within the uh, NATO EEC. He backed off from all of his public statements prior to elections. So it was a great deception. It was an interesting experience. I was the director of a Center for Mediterranean Research, which uh, had a number of projects designed to uh, identify the strong and weak points, potential allies for any progressive government, but the studies were never taken into account. Do you have any family there? I have some cousins on the island of Lesbos, some nephews, and uh, that's about it. My uh, old aunt died several years ago, and my uh, other relatives are non-existent. At least I, I have no uh, contact with them. So you can't put a human face on the austerity that people have been suffering in Greece? Well, it's more than that. It has to do with the plight of Southern Europeans. I've had contacts in Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal over the years. I worked in Spain for several years. I've been lecturing in Southern Europe, and uh, I feel strongly identified with the uh, populist struggles there. I've been advisor to trade unions and uh, farmers' movements over these uh, decades. So I feel much stronger identification with Southern Europe than I do with any other parts of uh, Europe. A crystal ball, 
Do you have one of those for what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks? It's hard to tell. It's very complex. Uh, I think that if uh, it goes to a referendum, I think the uh, Greek people will vote no to the European Union. They've suffered too much to uh, go along with the further austerity politics. On the other hand, uh, what's uh, uh, cognito at this point is whether uh, Teresa will actually follow up with this vote in the sense of uh, breaking with the uh, debt payments and austerity, uh, it seems dubious. To me, it seems like they're using this referendum as simply a device to say to the European Union, see, we have majority support. It's not just uh, the, the leaders, it's the entire people. You have to uh, cut back on the severity of your austerity and cut a deal. I'm not sure that the referendum will take off into uh, finally uh, uh, renouncing their uh, European Union, Eurozone, Euro dependency and uh, strike out on an independent path. I fear that ultimately Syriza will cut a deal, a rotten deal, with less austerity than the EU originally uh, demanded, but still austerity and and, uh, still subordination uh, to the European Union. I, I wish I could believe that they're going to use this to move forward, but I'm not very convinced. To the other side of the world, James, and US moves towards ending the economic blockade of Cuba, people have got different views on this. What's your view on it? Well, it's positive that the U.S. isn't dropping bombs and financing terrorists to attack Cuba every day, that people that were traveling illegally or semi-legally to Cuba before have a greater ease. There is some understanding that the Cuban government isn't going to be overthrown, at least by force and violence, and there is a great deal of demonstrated interest among business, educationalists, and others to establish relations with Cuba. So I think the uh, stranglehold that the minority of Cuban exiles had on policy has been severely weakened. Having said that, we still have the U.S. occupying Cuba and Guantanamo, uh, still have the blockade on major trade deals. Cuba cannot sell to the U.S. They can only buy uh, there's still limitations on uh, U.S. claims on Cuban property that was nationalized. There is still the idea that Washington wants to use an opening to penetrate Cuban society and overthrow or change the government as it's using so-called soft power instead of hard power. So there's a lot of issues still at stake, but it's uh, perhaps a positive sign that the Cubans have uh, uh, reduced the pressure from Washington, that they are able to negotiate uh, greater flexibility in dealing with uh, trade with the European Union and that they have uh, to allocate less uh, of their scarce resources to national defense. So I I think this is a generally a positive direction, but with a lot of uh, unanswered questions about the future. 
you're not concerned about swamping the island state economically? Well, the danger is, of course, that uh, the uh, revolutionary leadership is being diluted by a new generation of technocrats and that they will open the country up uh, to capitalism and uh, capitalists and that this will uh, subvert the uh, social gains of the revolution. Uh, I don't think that's a media problem. I think the media problem is to get Cubans to find markets overseas to uh, develop their uh, economic base. And I think the uh, problems with uh, long-term subversion by uh, capitalist penetration is a real one, but not immediate problem and as far as uh, Cuba's revolutionary organization and consciousness is sufficiently strong at this point to counter any uh, capitalist influences. So I think it's going to grow. I think the U.S. will take advantage of every opportunity they have to plant the seeds of capitalism in Cuba. Are there any dangers for Venezuela in this deal? Venezuela and Cuba have very close relations. They've had them for uh, almost 20 years. I think those will remain. Venezuela is very vulnerable this uh, coming year. December is elections, and the uh, right wing has been uh, exacerbating the economic problems. Uh, They still have uh, enormous leverage in the economy and the media. Uh, Washington is still financing terrorists and paramilitary groups who are engaged in uh, illicit behavior. They're currently in a a major campaign to free uh, three terrorist leaders that have been jailed, calling them human rights issues and uh, political prisoners instead of uh, terrorists. Uh, I think that uh, while the U.S. is trying to divide Cuba from Venezuela, Venezuela and Cuba still have an important strategic relationship. Venezuela subsidizes oil to Cuba. Cuba provides Venezuela with enormous social support via its medical, dental, and other uh, personnel that helps uh, keep their social programs viable. So I don't think Washington will succeed in dividing them, though I think the divergencies in terms of the capacity of Cuba to stabilize itself versus Venezuela, which is going through very difficult times. Finally, James, race-class relations in the U.S. The killings continue unabated, it would seem, both inside America and as a result of U.S. foreign policy. Can you link the two? That's very clear. Racism is rife. Let's put it this way. The U.S. attempts to provoke uh, Muslims and Afro-Americans to engage in in some kind of illicit terrorist activities through uh, uh, provocateurs and uh, actual federal agents arming and providing the weapons for a terrorist incident among some poorly educated blacks and inventing crimes by uh, humanitarian aid, which uh, Muslims provide to Pakistan and other compatriots. At the same time, you have uh, 100,000 
mass security agency bureaucrats who are not looking at white terrorism inside. It's all over the websites. The murderer of Charlestown 9 was on the website, but no attempt was to uh, arrest him or to uh, engage in any kind of uh, informational surveillance so that uh, it's a very one-sided picture here that Washington concentrates on trying to intimidate Muslims and at the same time tolerates and is even complicit with a lot of these right-wing racist organizations that uh, foment hate and uh, engage in actual violence. A study that was recently done indicates that about three-quarters of the terrorist incidents in, in uh, the U.S. are committed by whites, non-Muslims. And these people are under the radar. They're not uh, under surveillance. They're not tracked by the uh, so-called uh, Homeland Security and uh, the NSA. The problem is that uh, Obama's foreign policy and the Islamic policies are fomenting terrorism abroad and racism at home, and it, it has had a tremendous negative effect on people of color. And that was Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking to me early this morning from New York, talking about Greece, talking about Cuba, talking about race relations in the US. And that's all for me today. I'm running a little bit late, but Jonathan, unfortunately, is not able to come tonight. So we hope you're doing well, Jonathan, and you'll be back next week. So I'll say goodbye for now, and we'll be listening to some music from now on. Bye for now.